Secrets and Spies presents Espresso Martini with Chris Carr and Matt Fulton. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Espresso Martini. Chris, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you, Matt. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm 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 hanging in there. I'm a little I'm a little sleepy here. It's still 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 kind of early yeah. for this way. But yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of late here. Yeah. Well, it's not that late, but I'm still a bit sleepy as well today. But there we go. It's just these yeah. sort of autumn hours coming in. <laughs> I know. I know. All right. Well, once again, we have much to discuss. Uh, in Gaza, hostage rescue efforts and Hamas's sophisticated intelligence apparatus are complicating plans for Israel's anticipated ground assault. Meanwhile, Attackum's missiles have finally arrived in Ukraine with explosive results on the battlefield. Michael Weiss and the crew at Bellingcat publish another deep dive on Russian sabotage operations in Europe. And Donald Trump plans to withdraw the U.S. from NATO if re-elected next year. Get your antacids and Tylenol handy because today's episode is another fun one. <laughs> On Extra Shot, our bonus show for Patreon subscribers directly following this show, we're talking about how survivors of traumatic events process their experiences through storytelling, how misinformation runs rampant on Elon Musk's X, formerly known as Twitter, how a surprisingly uh, high number of celebrities once served as spies, and we offer our thoughts on Errol Morris's new John Le Carre documentary. As always, to access Extra Shot, you'll first need to be a Patreon subscriber, and you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies. Depending on the subscription level you choose, you'll receive a set of Secrets and Spies coasters or a coffee cup. By subscribing, you'll be directly supporting this podcast, and for that, we shall be eternally grateful. Thanks in advance for your support, and a huge thank you to existing subscribers. Your generosity helps keep this podcast going. Okay, first up, we're covering a pair of articles detailing the staggering complexity of an operation that Israel may launch to rescue any of the estimated 220 hostages held by Hamas in a warren of tunnels beneath Gaza. The first, by Howard Altman for The Drive, cites interviews with former U.S. and Israeli special forces officers, an FBI hostage negotiator, and the commander of U.S. Central Command. The second is an op-ed in The New York Times by Dr. Gershon Baskin, who helped negotiate the 2011 release of an Israeli soldier kidnapped by Hamas. Here are some key points from the articles, and then, Chris, I'll hand it over to you. Hostage rescue operations are complex and require detailed planning, intelligence, speed, and surprise. Gathering actionable intelligence is crucial, but the current situation in Gaza, which is an active war zone, makes it challenging to gather information. The lack of surprise in operations is a significant problem, and surprise is a key factor in combat success. Each building and location, such as tunnels where hostages might be held, presents unique challenges, and Hamas can be creative in thwarting rescue attempts. One of the most protected places in Gaza, and I didn't, I didn't really know this. I hadn't heard this before. Oh, the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. One yeah. of the most protected places in Gaza is the Dar al-Shifa hospital, under which is believed to be a Hamas command and control center where some hostages may be held. The IDF is using various sources of intelligence to plan rescues, including open source information and SIGINT. Cutting off essential services like fuel, electricity, and water is meant to put pressure on Hamas, which may lead to negotiations for the release of hostages, as we've seen through Qatar. U.S. Special Operations Forces have not participated on the ground in a hostage rescue mission with Israelis before, but are likely currently involved assisting the IDF in an advisory role with intelligence gathering and planning. Overall, while the challenges are significant, there is some confidence that more hostages can be saved. 
And lastly, in 2011, to secure the release of Gilad Shalit, this should give some context here on what we may be facing in the future. So in 2011, to secure the release of Gilad Shalit, an Israeli soldier captured by Hamas in a cross-border raid from Gaza, uh, Israel released over 1,000 Palestinian prisoners. Among them was Ali Qadi, who later became a company commander in Hamas's Nukba commando unit and helped lead the October 7th attack. He's since been killed in an IDF drone strike. Chris, what did it, what did you think about these articles? Yeah, I think they're both very interesting. Um, I'm sort of grown to become a big fan of the drive. Actually, I think it's a very interesting. Uh, oh yeah, uh, the war zone on the drive is pretty good. Actually, it gets a bit techie sometimes about aircraft and things, which is probably what drove me to it in the yeah. first place. But but it's uh, it's a really good analysis on there, and I think these interviews are very interesting. Um, it's a bit like what we were saying kind of last time we spoke about potential hostage rescues you know it's not going to be like the movie delta force because in reality hostage rescues this type are rare and they don't always work out um and when reading this my mind wandered again to the hostages of hezbollah in lebanon in the 1980s and then recently hostages held by isis in iraq and syria so getting intelligence on precise locations of hostages will always be a significant challenge and as you just mentioned you know hamas used tunnels um, and they may or may not be hiding hostages under that hospital. And, you know, we've just come off a a very um, contentious hospital bombing where Israel was originally blamed for it. And then it turns out it might well have been. Um, and I still think there is some element of confusion and doubt of exactly who's responsible but it looks like i think it's 99 percent sure that it was either uh an islamic jihad missile or a hamas missile that was actually supposed to be hitting uh, israel that actually took out the hospital or at least it did some damage to hospital again i think the in that case the casualty figures may or may not have been exaggerated by hamas as um, the yeah. pictures i've seen it seems to be there was an impact in the car park um from what i've seen um so it's all a bit a little bit sketchy, but a lot of emotions were running high and people were very quick to blame Israel. So again, Israel, if they were going to target this hospital that Hamas have their base in, I just think it's a big no-no. I don't think the Israelis would do that. And that's exactly why terrorist group like Hamas do this. They hide in public spaces. Also, you could argue because Gaza is so small, they have lack of space to build bases. So you yeah. could argue that. I get that. Um, but then if we look at other hostage situations, so there was a successful one in 2015 when US and Kurdish forces managed to rescue 70 hostages held by ISIS. Mm. And this operation led to the death of one US Special Forces member. Um, and in that particular scenario, ISIS were using a school to hide the hostages. So yeah. again, they were using a civilian location that you know nobody wants to bomb a school um i don't think anybody in their right mind would bomb a school and that's exactly why again terrorist groups use this so people need to be aware of these things hostage rescues can work out but they're very rare and obviously with that particular operation in northern iraq it had kurdish forces who were local to that area who knew things you also have the very famous israeli raid on entebbe which um was when israeli forces rescued hostages from a hijacked plane that was flown to uganda and there's two movies about that if you haven't heard of that before netanyahu's brother was killed in that raid he was yeah 
He yeah. was. He was one of the. Was he one of the leaders of the? I don't know if he was the leader of Sayeret Metcal, which is like Israel's Delta Force mm. or SAS. Mm. I'm not sure if he was. A, I think it's Yoni Netanyahu was his name. I'm not sure yeah. if he was a leader yeah. of the unit, but he was. He was a high-ranking officer in the unit, and he was killed in that raid. Yeah. 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 So again, like you know. Bearing that in mind for Benjamin Netanyahu, there's a personal connection right there. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing with such a small country like Israel, because everybody does military service and stuff, the entire country feels things in a way that maybe in America and Britain we wouldn't. Um, you know, we definitely don't have such a close, at least in the UK, we don't have quite such a close tight um, connection to the military in the way Israel does. Um, but in saying that, I've got, I have had a lot of friends who went into the army and stuff, and one in particular did get blown up but he luckily survived it um and he's actually gone on to do very positive things from that terrible experience um but yeah but that's that's going off on a tangent there slightly um so with the hostages again logistically speaking there's a lot of issues locating the hostages dealing with the armed mass fighters who are going to be holding the hostages then getting the hostages out of the tunnel and to the surface and then the extraction of a hundred plus hostages. In fact, it's I think it was I was heard in the BBC today. It's two hundred and twenty hostages that are held at the moment. It's two hundred and twenty hostages, we believe. Uh, they released four of them, all yeah. women. I think two, at least two, were dual U.S. citizens. I'm not sure about the other two. Yeah, yeah. Um, one hundred and thirty-eight yeah. of them hold foreign passports. Up to thirty are children. Wow. Wow. So there we go. To, how do you get 220 people out of somewhere? It's not easy. And the thing is, so I was looking at the helicopters Israel have, and they've only got Black Hawks, which hold 14 people, or the larger CH-53 that only holds 24 people. Yeah. And the thing about the CH-53 is a huge helicopter. Where the hell are you going to land that thing? Or multiple versions. You could use a Chinook, which holds 55 people, or the more maneuverable Osprey. But again, that only holds 24 people. And then with those helicopters in this scenario, you'd need protective cover for them. So that would mean Apache gunships, fighter jets. Um, and I just, you know, I mean, this is a helicopter rescue. If they could get them out by boat, there's another option. If you can get them out by motor vehicle, which again is a bit risky, I think they would pick an aircraft because it's quick, get them out. Um, but it's, it's, it, there's so many logistics involved in a hostage rescue that 220 people who also could definitely be spread across different locations and not all being held in like one hall somewhere. They're going to be spread out and half of them could just be immediately executed when the other half have been rescued there's all sorts of horrible things and scenarios that could come into into place so the only thing i do see is some sort of negotiation needing to take place which is what that guest on baskin article talked yeah. a little bit about but then with this negotiation so with the Gilad shallot case he was one soldier they had to release a thousand mass prisoners for one soldier so for 220 they're gonna what are they gonna ask for and is that a a cost israel can afford to pay especially after it's been revealed that one of the 1000 hamas prisoners led this raid in israel that started all this yeah so there's so many factors here that i just honestly i feel so so sorry for those people who are in captivity right now as we speak you know i've been literally over the last couple of weeks when I'm wandering around, if I see a kid, immediately my mind either thinks of a child who's been beheaded, um, one of the children as a hostage, or then, you know, a child killed in one of the Israeli airstrikes against the Palestinians in Gaza. And it, and it's just, every time I see a kid, it makes my mind go to one of those three scenarios. And all of them are horrible. Um, and, you know, um, yeah, you just 
do not ever want to get caught by a terrorist group, people. You know, um, <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it, I was thinking of that Leonardo DiCaprio film. Is it Body of Lies? Where I think early on in the film they're saying, rules of the day, we do not get caught alive, you know. <laughs> And I kind of feel like with a terrorist situation, you don't really want to get caught alive. You don't want to kill them or get killed. You don't want to end up being held hostage for many years. Um, and, and then finally you get murdered at the end of the, the dreadful experience, you know? Gila actually was held for five, five years. Crazy. So this could go on for years, couldn't it? This could go on for a decade or more. I mean, the Terry Waite thing went on for a good, I think, seven or ten years, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that went off. So I remember that as a kid in the 80s. Not, I just knew the name. I didn't really understand the situation. But Terry Waite's name would come up on the BBC News quite often. And I just knew he was this man being held in captivity somewhere far away. Um, and then I think he was released in around... He was released somewhere in the early 90s. I vaguely remember all this. Um, and um, yeah, that went on for a very long time. And it took, and there were even other hostages who took years to negotiate for as well. Um, and and some never came back. So yeah. I mean, I've sort of, I thought for a while, frankly, that unless you negotiate a release of of a mm. hostage or multiple hostages, um, I don't think you're going to get these people out by force. I just looking at no. the situation and what I mean. So I looked at a couple other big hostage crises to sort of compare the the scale of it and the and the complexity, right? So we already mentioned the um, Entebbe raid in uh, Uganda. Yeah. That was in 1976. That was 106 hostages, right? Yeah. The Beslan school siege, which was in, I think it was in mm-hmm. Dagestan or Ingushetia. It was in the Caucasus region of, of, of Russia. That was in 2004. That was 1,100 hostages, over 700 children. 314 of them were killed in the operation to rescue them. There was a Moscow theater uh crisis that was in 2002 was 900 130 were killed mind you the last two that i mentioned were in russia and the russian sort of domestic internal security forces are kind of notorious in their tactics for just like you know gassing whole buildings indiscriminately of who's in that was the 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 theater that was a theater thing yeah 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 so that that's sort of a a bit of a unique circumstance but I think something to keep in mind of maybe Entebbe is a little bit different, but I mean, also these crises weren't unfolding in the middle of an active war zone, you know, while an invasion and, and, and hundreds of airstrikes are sort of barreling down on the most densely populated strip of real estate in the world. That's like a, a quarter to a third, the size of Los Angeles, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, in, in, in Moscow, the Russians, it was in middle of Moscow. Russians controlled the airspace. They controlled mm. the ground. They controlled everything going on outside that theater. That's not true with the IDF going into Gaza. Um, I mean, their capabilities are substantial, but, I mean, you just don't have the degree of control over the over the area of operations that, that you would in sort of any other kind of classic terrorist-driven hostage, hostage uh, situation. Um mm. I don't know. I can't think of another crisis like this that is more more complex. I think it's a near impossible task to get them out by force. I think the only way yeah. is is going to be if any of if any more of them get out. And there's apparently some 
there's there's something going on uh, between the Egyptians and the Red Cross and the Qataris that um, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, sort of, and and mm. Biden sort of seems to believe that there is a mm. a purpose in in waiting um, and trying to hold the Israelis off from launching the invasions that, that they, they believe that there's some way that they can get more out. How many that is, um, I don't, I, I don't know. They're being very mum about it. Um, understandably as they probably should be. Um, well, yeah. yeah. Four versus 220 is a very small number of yes. people to be released. Very small. It's, it's almost, um, I'm trying to think of the word I want now, but it, it it's such a modest amount of people. Yeah, minuscule. It feels like the bare minimum. Yeah. The bare minimum that they could do, but to look good. Because it's the thing that pissed me off a little bit. With So I watched that, that um, press conference with the 85-year-old lady whose name totally escapes me, who was grabbed, mm-hmm. put on a motorbike, head down. You know, her body was spread outwardly across this seat, I guess. And she was driven through this field at high speed, beaten whilst they were driving to wherever she was taken to and then eventually she was given some medical treatment and all the people who are kind of the online apologists for Hamas at the moment harp on oh she got medical treatment she was treated so well and then obviously later on the lady when she was released very um bravely and I suppose symbolically for um shared humanity shook the hand of her captors before she left but cynically speaking, Hamas still have her husband in captivity. Yeah. So she's only going to say and do so much. Um, I mean, we may not even know the full scale of what her experience actually was because she might be fearful for repercussions against her husband. But um, but so many people are just jumping on the bandwagon to try and find an excuse to make them feel better because, oh, she was given medical treatment. But yeah, she was still kidnapped. She was still taken on a bike. An 85-year-old woman who was then beaten whilst being driven to wherever it was she was held in captivity against her will yeah. for about a week now in conditions that must have been dreadful. I mean, she looked a lot older in that moment in the press conference than a photograph of her from a few months before mm-hmm. with her husband looking very happy. Well, I think keep in mind, yeah, like if if your mother, if your parent was kidnapped by Hamas and they, you know, released, if they released them, would you go, oh, well, yeah, nice. They, they took care of her. They gave her medicine. No, I don't think you would be apologizing for them. No, um, no, you would you would hope they would look after them because it's the only way I think you could survive the day. Because to think of a relative who who um, who's been held in captivity and treated treated badly, I couldn't think of anything worse. Well, you, you know? also you have no idea if they're alive or dead. If they died five minutes ago, if they're going to die five minutes from now, you have no way of knowing, and you may never yeah. know. You know, yeah. so there's something else about about this that I think is especially psychologically distressing for the Israelis. I'm not sure if I've talked about this on on here. Have I talked about Pidyon Shvuyim? Don't think you have. No, no. I probably butchered the Hebrew pronunciation of that. But um it it literally means redemption of 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 captives. And what it is, it's a commandment under Jewish law that makes it a religious duty to effect the release of a fellow Jew held unjustly. And uh, the Talmud says that captivity uh, is a worse fate than starvation or death. So you consider that sort of psychologically what that means for the Israeli consciousness as a whole. And I think you sort of see why they release, you know, a thousand prisoners for to get yeah. Gilad Shalit back. Yeah, and equally under Islamic law, you're supposed to treat prisoners 
better than your own relatives when they're in your captivity. Right. You know, you're supposed to feed them, look after them, give them a good accommodation, be respectful. Um, yeah. And I and I don't believe that is happening. One other thing that came up in that article as well, one, um, I think it was one of the Israelis who was interviewed mentioned that he didn't help hold much hope for the captives and some of his fellow soldiers sort of see the Israeli captives as martyrs now. Um, which, again, does not bode well for those poor people. That's... That's a, um, I think a lot of, uh, I don't know if, if Netanyahu mm. himself has said it specifically, but people in his, in his coalition on the sort of Israeli far right have basically kind of, kind of broached that, mm. um, mm. idea, which I think is kind of rather dark and yeah. cynical. There's been, um, is that they get out of jail cards so they can behave badly? Is that what maybe is that what that is? Maybe. Yeah. But I mean, so there's been there's been a lot of tension, uh, I think, uh, internally in 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 Israel with a lot of the families of these hostages have been quite outspoken in their criticism of Netanyahu, Mm. who I mean, right up there next to Hamas, I think, frankly, is is second to holds a second like responsibility for this yeah yeah, yeah um yeah. netanyahu's government has been appalling and i just want to reiterate that many many israelis uh quite a large proportion of israelis disagree with netanyahu four out of five yeah and i and I, it's like 80 percent. and again online in the commentary kind of people treat israel as this sort of weird homogenous block that agrees of everything netanyahu or any extremist in the israeli government believes um and the israeli military and it's not that simple quite those protests that only just recently stopped against netanyahu quite a few of those people in those protests end up being victims of hamas um yeah so and and the majority of israelis want to get rid of netanyahu and have been very unhappy with his rule and um it, and the problem about wars they either solidify a president's power or they destroy it and and um and I, and I could sort of see it going both ways for Netanyahu at the moment. I mean, it's a bit like with George Bush. It kind of solidified his power um, when 9-11 happened and stuff. Because at the beginning, he was sort of seen as already a bit of a feckless president in the early days of his presidency. And then 9-11 happened and he became a war president. And then this sort of, you can't question active US policy because there are American lives at stake kind of thing set in for many Ooh. years. And I think they then, got him through to this, his second term, um, and and so there's a similar thing that could happen Netanyahu in time, where you know things keep happening, and and you don't want to disrupt leadership during a time of severe crisis, um, and he might just carry on. I don't know. It's well, that's that's a that's an important point there, mm. and I distinctly remember hearing. I mean, I was I was what. 14 during this election so i mean i wasn't you know fully cooked yet but i remember it people saying during the 2004 election you don't change horses mid-race which is basically like we're in iraq we're fighting the global war on terror mm, mm. we can't change presidents now because you know we're sort of already in the middle of it right that was sort of an argument that the bush campaign and and his supporters kind of used um i mean i think that's sort of certainly possible here maybe i mean especially with netanyahu's current coalition which has been kind of very anti-democratic mm. and and authoritarian curious mm. um at best that said i mean i don't know how i don't know how he comes back from this you know i mean once once sort of like 
the invasion is is done and maybe even before then i mean he wasn't he was kind of he was kind of toast even even before this you know with all the sort of domestic judicial reforms and stuff that they had going on yeah um and uh yeah i don't i don't know how I don't know how he survives this. He shouldn't survive, but he could. And that's the longer he stays in office, the more likely he'll survive. Yeah. Yeah. I think. But uh but we will see. But um yeah, I don't know. I just uh, I still think of those poor hostages are out there right now. It's just I could not think of anything worse. Um and um yeah, I I wish I had the words to make it sort of somehow feel better, but yeah. So yeah, I remember watching um this segment on CNN, I think it was last week. I'm pretty sure it was Jake Tapper. Um, but he was in Tel Aviv and um, he was interviewing the family members of um, a little boy. He's like small, um, who was kidnapped by uh, Hamas being held hostage in, in Gaza right now. Um, and they were saying how uh, he, this kid wears, wears glasses mm. and without his glasses, he's like basically like, like blind, like oh, can't gosh. function without his glasses. And when he was kidnapped by Hamas, he didn't, he didn't get to take his glasses. So they were saying, you know, th- this kid down in this tunnel somewhere, like alone, um, mm. without his glasses, can't see. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's horrible it's yeah yeah it's dreadful and do you know what to add to that dreadfulness one of those kids is 12 years old it's his birthday today oh yeah 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 funny. i saw that um they mentioned that on 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 cnn too yeah i mean it's yeah. it's uh this sort of what's really kind of shocked me about this conflict is just this stunning scale of inhumanity of it and by that I mean what 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 Hamas did, yep. and this sort of casual anti-Semitism that has sort of exploded mm. all over the place, yeah, um, which is really disturbing. And also, you know, the sort of essentially indiscriminate bombing of some parts of Gaza, yeah, um, you yeah. know, and the Palestinians who are suffering there without uh, without food and water and 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 electricity and and medicine. I mean, that's what's really um, and then you hear individual stories like that, like that kid without his glasses, the kid whose whose birthday is is today, you know, and it really kind of puts it all. You kind of zoom in on on an individual life lost mm. in this whole mm. thing. Well, this is it. It's very easy and dangerous for these wars to become mathematics, and you know, I remember yeah. the dreadful term collateral damage was invented some point during the iraq war at least i believe it was invented then i certainly don't remember it being in the popular lexicon until that um and you know civilian casualties need to be avoided as much as one can and they're you know um and i'm not quite sure what the cards are for israel to respond in different ways um but yeah, it's just horrible. And I think in your article, they mentioned, I didn't even realize this, that the um, turning off the water and electricity is kind of a part of a negotiating tactic, apparently. So that's a double sided sword. Definitely. Definitely. You know, yeah. like I get that, that sort of tactical advantage mm. that you're trying to assert over Hamas, mm. but there's two million other people in there. Well, how many, the problem is with this bombing the bejesus out of somewhere, how many new sort of terrorists does that create for tomorrow how many more people are going to be inspired by this um 
it's you know especially that hospital bombing the reaction to it last week before the information came out my goodness you know as mm-hmm. i think you were saying it did feel like um i don't know it just felt like this is it the middle east is now on fire and god yeah. knows what's going to happen um so for listeners chris and i were talking about that before we started recording that that i was i was texting with um with with philip Smythe, who we who i had on the other week that night that that the hospital thing happened and it, it was i thought it was very scary i thought yeah. i thought it was all gonna go yeah. down well this is it um, and, and this is the problem israel very much uses superior force and overreacts to these situations um and Israel has every right to pursue justice for what happened in this terrorist attack on the 7th of October. And they do need to find a way to bring the individuals responsible to justice in some way or to remove them uh, or take them off the battlefield to use the CIA parlance. Um, and we'll be yeah. probably talk about that in a minute. Um, yeah. And and because they can't just let it lie. Uh, I don't think anybody would be able to do that. And if anybody thinks that that's the option are insane, um, you can't just let people get away with bad behavior like that all the time. And I was being very polite about it. Um, you know, so yes, yeah, so I'm not quite sure totally what the options are, but I just feel like at the same time, Israel always has this PR problem every time they react to the situations with that Hamas started in this situation um, on the 7th of October um and, and no matter what they do they're always going to be in the wrong in some way or another um and this is the what tom parker calls the terrorist trap so you know we were talking about this the other week where a terrorist will do something and it will keep successively doing worse and worse things to get the authority who they're fighting against to overreact and overreact in such a way where they lose their moral authority and that's the thing. I think one of the horrific realities of this dreadful reaction to Israel and, and the 7th of October attack is that Israel's lost a lot of moral authority over the years for various reasons. Some of that to do with terrorist propaganda, some of that to do with their kind of, should we put it, call it overreactions to certain things and bombing the bejesus out of Gaza or West Bank. I don't know what better options there were. Um, but I certainly don't think bombing the heck out of places and having mass civilian casualties is going to inspire change in a positive way. Um, so something, I don't know, I wish I knew what the answer was because I'd have the Nobel Peace Prize and go out and deal with it, but I don't. You know? <laughs> so, so let's, yeah, yeah. let's put a pin yeah. in that topic. So yeah. I didn't pick, somewhat purposely, I didn't pick any um, hospital stuff to, to so for for... I don't know. It was just crowded. There was there was there's a lot going on. Um, but there's one article in 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 Vanity Fair that just recently came out um, that maybe we could talk about on on the next one that looks at sort of the um, internal deliberations and debate and 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 discontent inside the New York Times' newsroom oh. on the night of that hospital bombing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how they sort of yeah. they sort of. Um, fumbled the ball there yeah um yeah go ahead with that and i i think i think there's something to be said in that reaction of why the press would sort of reach to that conclusion Mm. so easily Mm. and i do think the israelis kind of have a role to play in why people Mm. would sort of be like yeah the israelis bombed a hospital you know so let's maybe let's let's save that for um 
for next time and we can yeah. go into that because there's yes. there's a lot of interesting stuff to yeah uh, there's some very about. interesting stuff yeah 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 all right so should we do hamas uh intelligence yeah let's do spies okay. of hamas yeah so technology was thought to have largely eclipsed human-based intelligence collection methods in warfare but hamas demonstrated the effectiveness in old-fashioned espionage jeff stein on his spy talk newsletter has some interesting details on how hamas employed conventional let's say analog intelligence gathering surprising many israeli security and defense officials with their sophistication so Hamas fighters uh, killed in the October 7th attack had detailed maps and tactical guides for Israeli military bases, police stations, and even safe rooms in Kibbutzim, indicating a sophisticated level of intelligence gathering. In the past, Hamas has established electronic warfare units and a server farm to disrupt Israeli air defense systems, highlighting their technological capabilities. Uh, some of the 17,000 Palestinians with work permits in Israel, which are, I think, all married men over the age of 35, I think they, they, they have to be. Some of those 17,000 Palestinians with, with work permits in Israel might have been coerced or willingly served as spies, uh, providing Hamas with vital information about Israeli targets. Intelligence shared with the U.S. reveals that a small group of Hamas operatives communicated through hardwired phone lines in tunnels beneath Gaza for over two years, allowing them to evade Israeli signals intelligence collection. During this planning period, the group avoided digital communications and stayed off computers and cell phones um, in favor of old-fashioned counterintelligence measures such as in-person planning meetings and strict compartmentalization. Chris, I think you, you you flagged this article for us. Yeah, I think Jeff Stein and Spy Talk is very good. They actually have a podcast as well. Um, and and I, I subscribe to their Substack and get all sorts of interesting um, little things that come out. So this one did stand out a little bit. And um, there was a few kind of points within it that crept up. I mean, there's one quoting in the article about the level of specificity would cause anyone in the intelligence fields jaw to drop in relation to the um, Hamas attack and Jeff pointed out that it sounded like the commander had made the classic mistake of underestimating their enemy and um, and I think that might well be one of the reasons why you know we talked about this last week about the lack of imagination sometimes in intelligence and i think maybe underestimating what hamas and the palestinians could potentially do um yeah. was a key factor in in what happened and i don't know why but i find this um a little bit disturbing but not you know not unsurprising that hamas have had human sources on the ground help in this particular attack i don't know why i find that a little bit creepier and a little bit worse than 9-11 attacks because the 9-11 attacks as terrible as they were were kind of targeted at very well-known buildings whilst with this particular attack it was sort of targeting small communities and small centers and things like that yeah and just to think that there were people who I don't know, um, was the gardener last week in the kibbutz is, yeah. you know, actually working for Hamas and, and, and led to, you know, the murders that took place there. I find that quite creepy. And then there's a, funny enough, not in the article, but in the comments of the article, Jeff made an interesting observation that the, the Palestinians have obviously been spying on Israel in different forms since 1948. And singularly focused intelligence missions tend to have a greater deal of success. And I remember having a chat with Dr. Vince Housen in like the first year of this podcast about Cuban intelligence a little bit. And he was saying yeah. that Cuban intelligence is so effective because basically Cuban intelligence is pretty much 99% focused on America. And so when you have an intelligence service, it's just about one particular thing. They're very good at it. And so, yeah, the Palestinian, um, you know, and Hamas and uh, Hezbollah should never, ever be underestimated. Um, and then, you 
you know, and in the article it talks about, and you mentioned it about their, um, that they've modernized and they've got this uh, electronic warfare unit um, that's been trying to neutralize the Iron Dome defenses and disrupt IDF communications. They've probably got electronic surveillance capabilities as well. I'm sure they're monitoring people's social media. So, yeah, it's, it's a very, they're a very sophisticated operation, I think. I remember seeing reports in the last few weeks of uh, survivors in some of those villages saying that they recognized a few of the Hamas gunmen that they had worked Ooh, yeah. in those kibbutzes. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, that's uh, that's something to, to your point before, that this attack is just way more personal than 9-11 was. Mm-hmm. I mean, 9-11 was on such a sort of grand kind of uh, uh, scale, but this was, yeah, going into people's homes um, you know, getting up close and personal, which is, I think, what what really was just so shocking about this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think, frankly, you know, there's sort of a tendency of a lot of sort of people in the West to sort of say that to look at these groups like Hamas or 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 Hezbollah or some of the other backed some of the other uh, Iranian backed groups and say like, oh yeah, you know. Hamas is ISIS, which basically means, you know, they're savages, they're monsters, you know, they're basically like just cardboard kind of cartoon villains. And and frankly, I think that's, I get their point, but I mean, speaking as someone who's sort of studied these groups for what, 15 years now, if that, Mm -hmm. close to 20 probably, I think we underestimate these groups at our peril. It's sort of like, trying to i don't know go into a cage with a tiger without respecting it first these are well-trained well-funded uh well-armed actors working at near nation state levels of sophistication i think when you talk about hamas to an extent but especially hezbollah especially hezbollah i think they have more in common with a rogue state such as you know North Korea or Gaddafi's Libya than they do, you know, what you would think a straight up terrorist group like Al Qaeda. Um, and if you try to reduce them to just bloodthirsty kind of savages, you're not going to fully understand what they are and why they endure mm. and what makes them mm. so powerful. It's it's so much more than that. Um, yeah, and I just think that's important to sort of keep in mind. And I think that that you know they were that Hamas was able to to gather this much extensive specific intelligence on a really you know yeah like mapping out where safe houses are in particular buildings in these little villages i mean that's that's extensive really professional stuff another thing i would love to know more about that electronic warfare unit i mean the jeff stein's article didn't really say like they were trying to sort of neutralize the iron dome but I don't know how. Well, yeah, that would be my one criticism of the article a little bit. It's quite light on details. It was very much an overview. I mean, he may not have those details. No, he probably doesn't. And he he talked a little bit about his experiences of running spies in Vietnam, which was really great. Yeah. But yeah, it's... it's, No, the underestimating of, of... you know, Middle Eastern actors is quite common. I remember, funny enough, um, in the conspiracy theory world, Alex Jones used to say... You can't believe a man in a cave planned 9-11. Now, why can't you believe a man in a cave planned 9-11? Why not? Why not? Also, Bin Laden wasn't in a cave. No, no, exactly. He was not found in a cave. No, no. But I, from Alex Jones's point of view, I think he thinks Bin Laden's yeah. some primitive guy who, you know, yeah. doesn't even have a, a satellite phone um, or anything. Yeah. And it's like, you know, these 
groups have been nothing but sophisticated. Um, I mean, gosh, even the if you go back to some of the early Tom Clancy novels where he looks at Middle Eastern terrorism and stuff, he he knew about what was going on. He knew um, the the sophistication of all all these groups. Yeah, I mean, in the um, in the Sum of All Fears, he has a couple. Uh, I think they're mm. I think they were Lebanese terrorists. They weren't quite his ball up. They were Lebanese. Uh, yeah, they sort of um, reverse engineer a hydrogen bomb yeah. from you know one that they dug out of the Golan Desert. And like, yeah. and the senior leadership of like all these terrorist groups tend to be all PhD holding people and stuff like that. You know, Bin Laden, I think, was an engineer, wasn't he? His deputy was yeah. a, a doctor. You know, and they they consulted architects to figure out where the best part of the twin towers was to strike and things like that. You know, they considered all those things. Um, so you know, just because somebody's from the Middle East, you should never think that they are um stupid or or lesser than you it's it's a really bad mentality and i think maybe i don't know whether that's the case in israel and israel senior leadership but one could say if if there is this sort of far-right government that's been in power in israel for a while you could believe that then there are some far-right sort of uh israelis in the senior uh, positions the military who may well think in terms like that but I, obviously i can't verify that but um oh, just sure speculating very widely there um it's like with when trump was in power he, he positioned certain people into positions of authority who, quite frankly were not up for the job and i'm sure netanyahu may well have done the mm -hmm. same thing yeah a couple more interesting points that i had here so the hamas is sort of internal phone and data network inside gaza that was new to me i mean i knew oh yes i'm not surprised by it yeah. um Hezbollah is known to have a huge internal telecommunications network that mm. sort of spread all throughout Lebanon. Um, it's actually featured a bit in um, Active Measures. Mm. Um, but the it, it makes sense to me then that Hamas would also have one. I mean, mm. they're both sort of backed and sponsored by the by the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, mm. and mm. you know, so they why wouldn't they just build one for Hamas? Yeah, too. In the same area. I can't remember if it was this article, something I've read recently, that um, Hamas and Hezbollah are using Chinese GPS units, um, you know, Chinese equivalent to GPS, oh, yeah. which the uh, Israelis and the Americans allegedly can't penetrate. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but, you know, somebody somewhere was saying that. <laughs> they may not want us, they might, we might want them to think that we can't yeah. penetrate that, but I feel like this sort of, um, Chinese uh, satellite positioning system would be a quite mm. high on the target list for the NSA. Mm, I'm sure it is. But, you know, <laughs> let them think that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, another thing here. So I, I, many people have sort of called Gaza um, an open air prison. And I, I think that's warranted frankly, but I, I think the situation on the ground before this attack was a bit more complicated. Mm. You know I mean? This, um, Article says like seventeen thousand Palestinians had work visas to hold construction and and agricultural jobs inside Israel. Um, hundreds of trucks came into Gaza from Israel every day. Mm. Um, and like if you look at if you go on like Google Maps, right, and you look at like most of southern Gaza, you'll see huge expanses of um, greenhouses. Um, and Gaza for a long time, their sort of biggest export, their, their cash crop essentially was, uh, flowers yeah. that they would grow 
and the Israelis would let it come through the crossing and they would be um, exported to like the Netherlands where they have those, you know, big, huge commercial uh, flower mm, markets. Mm, mm. Um, and uh, I, I think that those programs, that sort of leniency that the Israelis kind of allowed in recent years was certainly predicated on the belief that Hamas had kind of matured, um, that they weren't essentially, you know, ISIS. Um, yeah. and, and it was sort of on, was predicated on, on the belief that such a massacre that we saw was not possible. And yeah, all of that, no matter how this war ends, you know, whether or not Gaza is, is ultimately turned to glass or not, I don't know. But regardless of how the war ends, all that stuff is gone. Well, yeah. you know, those 17, those 17,000 Palestinians with, 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 with work visas, those exports, you know, that, that Gaza had all of that's over mm. because of this attack. Well, this is one of the things maybe people forget about terrorist groups, especially Islamist-inspired terrorist groups. They want to remove any gray area or any kind of um, mutual relations between Arabs and Israelis or, or yeah. with the case of Al-Qaeda Muslims and non-Muslims. The reason they do that, they aren't trying to make this bright, fuzzy world for Muslims. They're trying to just get more recruits for their version of Islam. And um, so anybody who is being pally with the Israelis, they will see as a collaborator in some way or another and not for their cause. And so the more the more that they can inspire um, mistrust between Israelis and Arab Israelis, as they're known as, um, I believe there's some contention yeah. over that label, but that's another topic. But um as long as there's mistrust between Israelis and Arab Israelis, that makes it very difficult for positive relations to bear fruit. And the last thing Hamas want is positive relations to bear fruit because then there's no need for Hamas anymore. Um, same with right-wing Israelis, I guess. There's no need for their sort of very uh, narrow view of of uh, Judaism and their ruling of, of Israel in quite that way, you know, and, and that's the thing. And so... This is the problem about extremist groups. They want to remove the normalization of relations between ordinary people, and they just want to get everybody's back up. And so then they get more recruits for their cause. Um, so, yeah, so this is the sad reality of this situation, is now there is going to be mistrust, isn't there, massively? Well, yeah, and it's also, I mean, to your point about, you know, Hamas sort of not, maybe not wanting Palestinians to sort of have those kind of mutual mm. aid programs and stuff into Israel. Um, it's very hard to dehumanize people that you know. Yes. It takes a special kind of person to look someone in the eye and, 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 and hate them. Um, that's very hard for most people. It's not really in our nature. It's, it's, it's easy to, to, to hate, an abstraction of a person that you've mm. created or been fed in your mind, it's very hard to 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 hate someone that you know personally. Mm. Mm. But the sad reality is, with at least some of the gunmen, they have crossed over, haven't they, into that territory where they do hate oh, yeah, people sure. so much, where they will do unspeakable things to them. One other quick question. We talk a lot about Gaza, as you were saying, about being a prison open prison and etc and people often talk about how it's very difficult to get aid in and stuff but i'm amazed that hamas managed to get so much weaponry into gaza so much technology into gaza to aid in this attack 
Um, And I've seen videos of them turning water pipes into rocket launchers. And the thing is, the the weapons they had on the day of the attack were proper rocket launchers. They were AK-47s, probably some M4 rifles. Yeah, there were some pretty, pretty... you know, Small legit guns there. It weren't like homemade weapons. Because I've seen over the years in, in um, Gaza, is a very there's a popular type of gun known as the Carl Gustav, but it's a copy of the Carl Gustav because the Carl Gustav submachine guns are quite easy to remanufacture if you have the blueprints, apparently. Um, if you know anything about metals and stuff, you can make one a, a functioning machine gun quite easily. But the thing is, they weren't using improvised weapons. They were using legit guns. They got them in there, into Gaza somehow, and again, like as you were saying earlier, Israel had been sort of relaxing certain things over the last few years, maybe because of Hamas, as I'll put in quotation marks, revised charter, because we were talking about the Hamas charter in the last episode. So if you've not heard about the Hamas charter, please listen to the last episode. But um, Hamas have always had it in their charter to destroy Israel and to you know send Jews to the um, into the sea, and um, and so yeah, maybe again the Israelis hoping to thinking of their better nature of the of Hamas um started to think that they matured as you said earlier you know and it's very sad that that actually they haven't yeah well to sort of answer your your question about how they get the weapons in mm. um that's the Iranians essentially mm. um they have a, uh, extensive smuggling networks that come up through Sudan into Egypt um, and then into the Sinai Peninsula. Do you think, are they doing it through tunnels? Because they, they can't believe they're getting it in lorries and stuff, are they? They won't be getting it via boats. Partially, partially, not not mm. not boats. I mean, the the naval cordon is is pretty um is uh pretty pretty tight mm. um around Gaza through you know through through the border crossings, yes, to to an extent, but also um the the tunnel networks. So a lot of I mean, yeah, like there's small arms and stuff that that's easy to 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 smuggle in. Um, they're Hamas's rocket force. I think they're supposed to have up to like 20, 20 to thirty thousand um, various sorts of of missiles. Some of them are sort of um, uh, domestically produced themselves, like you said, mm. through like water pipes and mm. stuff. And some of them are like uh, like Fajr uh, rockets um, that are like Iranian made, um, and they're you know disassembled and then smuggled in in pieces and then reassembled in Gaza in sometimes not ideal conditions by people who aren't entirely qualified to reassemble a complex missile system and then fire it off and have it function properly, Mm. which is why you saw what happened at the hospital. Mm. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And just to remember many years ago, I was having a a debate with a very left-wing friend of mine, and he described the Hamas rockets as just mere fireworks. And they're not mere fireworks. You know, these are proper rockets that kill people. Um, And, yeah. Yeah, it's not not all little little fireworks. I mean, they had some stuff that that that's quite that's quite serious i mean the iron dome has sort of reduced that to being like a nuisance you know i think it would be a lot different if, if they didn't have if if um if israel didn't have the iron dome to give some context about those rocket mm. forces mm. and sort of the the scale of what you know the israelis would be facing if the conflict sort of expands hope it doesn't um so hamas is sort of estimated to have somewhere between 20 to thirty thousand rockets and missiles of varying sizes and 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 capabilities mm. um hezbollah has 160,000 yeah so should 
should tell you about, mm. you know, mm. the difference in scale. And when I said, you know, that Hezbollah has more in common with North Korea or like yeah. Libya's Gaddafi than they do Al Qaeda. Yeah. That's why I say that. Yeah, yeah. They are not they are not to be trifled with. No. And so for the sake of Israeli citizens, if we do care about the citizens of Israel, they need the Iron Dome, you know. We should not yeah. be pissing around with that, you know. Um but there we go. <laughs> well let's uh let's um let's sort of talk about Mossad and Shinbet falling back on what they do best after this attack, which is uh exact revenge on their um, enemies. So uh, the Times of Israel is reporting that uh, Israel has established a special operations center to track down and eliminate members of the Hamas commando unit known as Nukba, responsible for the attack in southern Israel. Um, the unit will be named after the World War One era Jewish underground uh, organization Nili, an acronym for a Hebrew phrase which translates as the eternal one of Israel will not lie. The IDF has already targeted and killed several Nukba commanders in airstrikes. Uh, Israel is currently focusing on two top targets, Hamas military commander Mohammed Diaf and political leader Yahya Sinwar, with Israel warning that every Hamas member faces death. Diaf and Sinwar have taken refuge in a network of tunnels in Gaza to evade Israeli airstrikes, and they are now considered Israel's top priorities. Uh, Yahya Sinwar, a founding member of Hamas, was elected as a leader of the organization in Gaza in 2017 and is a prominent figure in the group's history. Mohammed Diaf, the head of Hamas's military wing, the Is Adin al-Qassam brigades, has remained elusive and is known for his involvement in various attacks and his revival through multiple assassination attempts. Mm. Um, experts believe that while eliminating Sinwar and Diaf would weaken Hamas, it may not completely crush the organization which remains Israel's declared aim. Chris, what do you think about this? Well, yeah, it's not surprising, is it, um, that they're going to be doing this. Um, so obviously, you know, I thought of Operation Wrath of God, which we talked about last time as well, yep. which was the Israeli... Have that in my notes too. Yeah, that's the Israeli response to the Munich Olympics 1972. And typically Mossad would have operatives uh, armed with 22 caliber silenced Berettas or a carefully placed bomb. Um, and they would target uh, people who were either directly connected to the Munich Olympic attack or people who were kind of at the planning side of it and um and they were fairly successful in getting quite a few people but they did also kill a lot of innocent people too through mistakes and identity and and um it also led to a lot of restrictions on Mossad officers operating in Europe and I think maybe only maybe in the last of 20 years has potentially some of that legacy got a bit better because obviously we saw about close relations between Italy and Mossad officers not long ago um and so yeah so i think when you start sending out the assassins it's a slippery slope um but in my personal opinion there are some cases i believe that a carefully planned assassination could save lives but navigating the morality of such a uh, an act is very complicated nine times out of ten it's more likely to bite you in the ass in some way um and you know and in many respects, short of arresting the perpetrators behind the 7th of October attack, um, this is probably, sadly, the next best option. Um, and depending on how surgical the Israeli forces can get, it may be the best way to avoid civilian casualties. I know the CIA have kind of, over the last sort of maybe five or ten years, got drone strikes down to a fine art now, because they've got this new modified Hellfire, which doesn't have an explosive in it called the R9X, and it has these massive blades that come out 
And so when it, it gets near the target, the blades come out and it literally just chops the person in half. And the the force it's of the missile. What happened to a Zawahiri? Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Laden's deputy on his balcony in Kabul. Yeah. Exactly. And so as horrific as that is. Killing Ayman Al Zawari is probably a positive um, because yeah. he was oh, well, the head of Al Qaeda, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and Al Qaeda has been in a, you know, it's very because the drone program is incredibly controversial. So it's not, you know, because obviously the drone program has led to an awful lot of civilian casualties. So don't mistake in my um, earlier comment for me thinking that they are um, kind of without casualty. Drones are pretty awful, but um, but this modified Hellfire missile has certainly reduced the level of um civilian deaths versus a hellfire missile that is loaded with explosives and um so in the right circumstances where you know they can use that that might be a, a choice the israelis might go for um so it's and, and then i was also thinking of the the mossad killing of hamas chief's weapon buyer Zamahoud al Mabawi in Dubai. I hope I got his name right there. Do you remember that one? Where the Israeli... guy in the hotel. Exactly, yeah. The guy at the hotel had a... Um, had bad passports or something. That's it. He had the Mossad hit squad that had about yeah. 26 people involved in this operation to kill one man. Big up. Yeah. And they, they, and they all got... You know, all the key people were caught in the hotel CCTV. Obviously, they're wearing various disguises and things. But they were soon exposed and their faces in the international media everywhere. And if you Google this particular... Um, assassination you can see all the faces of the Israeli uh, people involved so I doubt they'll be able to travel to Europe freely or anything like that um, and uh, yeah they they uh, basically targeted this Hamas guy in Dubai and um, they gave him a they broke into his hotel room gave him a muscle relaxant so he was paralyzed and then they electrocuted him and then suffocated him uh, which honestly Probably not it's the way to go. Yeah, it's not the nicest way to go at all. I think a twenty-two caliber bullet to the head quickly would be much nicer than being electrocuted and then suffocated. So, um, yeah, it's definitely with assassinations. I think if one's going to do it, I think the only ethical thing, because we're already throwing ethics out the window quite a bit by assassinating people, but the uh, I think the only next step is to make sure it's quick and relatively painless. Um, but that's just you know. I yeah. <laughs> I got a feeling Mossad's going to get creative. Oh with yeah. some of these people. Oh yeah, they're going to get fucking medieval on them. Yeah, yeah. I can understand them wanting to do that. I don't condone that, by the way, because, but because uh, a lot of um, you know people were very brutally murdered in that attack. But uh, but there we go. Just telling you what they're probably going to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. One one thing though, yeah, about talking about us Americans and assassinations. Don't call it an assassination. It's a lethal finding. Very important. This this message brought to you by the Central Intelligence Agency Office of General Counsel. Oh, is that what they call it now? Yeah. How funny. It's a lethal finding. Yeah. I mean, so I think this is, I think you're a bit more bearish on this strategy than I am. I mean, I think this is truly the environment, the type of operations in which Israeli intelligence thrives. Um, they have an incredibly long memory and they will find you. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about Operation Garibaldi in 1960, um, you know, kidnapping Adolf Eichmann, architect of the Holocaust in Buenos Aires, dragging him back to Israel to stand trial. Um, Operation Wrath of God that we talked about, um, in response to the Munich Olympic massacre in 72, um, the assassinations of numerous uh, nuclear scientists over the decades working for uh, Iran, Iraq, Egypt, and Syria. 
Um, the assassination of Imad uh, Magnia, um, Hezbollah's military chief of staff in Damascus in 2008. Um, I mean, compared to a full ground invasion of Gaza, I think this is probably the most appropriate way to handle retribution for the attacks. Yeah. I mean, I think you, I think they, and will, they should, and, and they will eventually hunt down and eliminate every single last Hamas gunman who crossed that fence, every leader who ordered and planned the attack, every financier and logistician who facilitated it. I think anyone and anyone, anyone and everyone who touched this op must die. Um, I think it's, it's kind of the only way for Israeli intelligence to regain their honor after after mm. missing this attack we uh yeah unfortunately it's a very slippery slope i mean ideally uh, from a human rights perspective that every mission should have the option to try and arrest people but that's not really gonna happen in the gaza strip is it no i mean look i think i, I think you also start seeing um hamas operatives leaders who who even outside of gaza start turning up dead um like their leaders in 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 Qatar. Yeah. Uh, once this sort of invasion really kicks off, and we sort of don't need the Qataris to kind of negotiate hostages anymore, um, I would think it's going to be open season on some of those Hamas members in Qatar and in the Gulf and elsewhere. Yeah. I, I think. Look, if if when it comes to a full scale ground invasion, I question what is what military objectives are achievable in doing such a thing. I mean. Are are you gonna kill every military age male in Gaza? I mean, what does what does victory look like? Yeah. You, should you should 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 Bibi Netanyahu be able to walk through the ruins of Gaza City and and no one tries to take a shot at him? Mm. Is that what victory would look like? Mm. I just don't know how you. I mean, should Hamas be destroyed? Yes, but is it is it is it feasible to do? Given the costs that it would take Israel to to achieve that, um, I really question this. And, and another thing, I think after this attack, in the immediate aftermath of this attack, I think the Israelis had a unique opportunity to turn the Arab world against Hamas, the way the Arab world turned against ISIS. And I think that chance has already been squandered by turning half of gaza to glass echoes of 9 11 again um, yeah yeah america yes. had that opportunity. and and yeah biden went over there and said mm. don't do what we did yeah um yeah. and uh i don't know history's history's kind of repeating itself i mean if you look at like okay so so the terrain in gaza right you can't send uh Merkava tanks and armored personnel carriers into that kind of urban terrain in Gaza, they're going to get bogged down. They're going to lose their kind of in. They're going to lose their infantry support. There's going to be Molotov cocktails and IEDs and people coming around corners uh, with with RPGs. They're going to get slaughtered. What you would have to do first is you would have to basically flatten the entire city and then send the tanks in to clean up what's left. That's what you're looking at in this invasion. And I I. That that that's what you're going to have to do to achieve the objectives that they're saying, and I I don't know that those objectives are achievable at the cost they would warrant. When when you could do it a lot quieter behind closed doors and take your time and slowly one by one get your list together. Anyone who touched this op 
and just go down the list and start crossing off names. Yeah, yeah. Well, one controversial thought I've had for a little while, I wonder if Hamas has been watching Ukraine's success against Russia. I'm sure. Who were seen as a superior force, who, you know, who've lost a lot of tanks and stuff using very low-key tactics, a drone dropping a grenade on yeah. the tank. And I'm, I think Hamas has got themselves geared up to fight um, the Israelis like the Ukrainians are fighting the Russians. I really do. Yeah. And I think that I might mean, be the trap they're about to walk into if they're not careful. If you go back to the sort of opening days of the invasion of Ukraine, right? Yeah. When when the Russians were that huge, like 40 mile long or something mm. armored column was at sort of the gates of, yeah. uh, of Kiev, the Russians couldn't even get past the suburbs, mm. much less into the middle of mm. Kiev city center. Mm. Because they, it was going to be a complete and utter bloodbath. Yeah, and that's no different for the Israelis. No, no, and I think, I just think warfare's changed a lot in the last eighteen months. Um, yeah, maybe I'm wrong there. Not a, uh, a a warfare historian, but certainly it feels like warfare's changed a lot since the Ukraine wars happened. Um, yeah, and I don't get the impression that the Israelis have really studied properly what's going on considering especially in ukraine it's like iranian drones being used and stuff like that against the ukrainians the you would have thought that mossad or someone should go out there and study what's going on because there are going to be consequences at some point down the line well you know what's interesting i think before this attack and when putin came out and was sort of like go hamas um the israelis at least at least netanyahu's government we're sort of hedging their bets between the two, you know? They were never really um, all that openly supportive mm. of the Ukrainians. I mean, I think the Ukrainians asked for a bunch of Israeli weapon systems, and the Israelis were like, no. Because mm. mm. they sort of wanted to keep that kind of close-ish relationship with the Russians, yeah. and that totally blew up in their faces. Yeah. Zooming out on the map, we're going to leave the Middle East behind for now and return to another ongoing bloody conflict that hasn't slowed down a wink, even though much of the West has been distracted the last few weeks. Uh, better late than never, the White House has signed off on providing attackums to Ukraine, which sat right at the top of President Zelensky's shopping list. Um, a New York Times article by David Sanger breaks down the details. So here we go. Ukrainian forces launched attacks on two key Russian air bases using American-made attackums long-range missiles. President Biden approved the covert delivery of these missiles, marking a shift in U.S. policy as Biden was previously concerned about escalating the conflict with Russia. The White House reversed its stance on providing the weapons after similar long-range missiles were supplied by Britain and France without significant Russian reaction. ATACMS, which stands for Army Tactical Missile System, that's creative, can be used by Ukraine to strike up to 100 miles into Russian-occupied territory, causing damage to runways, helicopters, an ammunition depot, and more. The U.S. delivered about 20 of these missiles in secret to Ukraine, and are a version of attackums that utilize cluster munitions. Their use in conflicts is banned by an international agreement that the U.S. has not signed. And I believe the U.S. gave these specific, hmm. the specific type of cluster munition warhead, yeah. um, because uh, they sort of we sort of decided that we couldn't see us use, using that kind of munitions ourselves in any conflict anytime soon. So we give it to the Ukrainians. And there's a apparent shortage of the other kind that America needs to hold on to. Yeah. Yeah, just the regular sort of singular high explosive warheads that mm. we need for 
probably for the Chinese someday. Um, Coming to a podcast near you soon. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, not now. And we we got to settle some other stuff before we do that. Yeah. I can't. I can't do it all. All right. Germany. Germany may be pressed to donate its Taurus missile systems now. Uh, Ukraine has pledged not to fire the American attackums into Russian territory. A pledge it is also made for the use of British and French systems. The strikes on the air bases were reported by Russian military bloggers who described them as a major setback for the Russian military. Up to 1,300 Russian troops may have been killed in the strikes, marking one of Russia's deadliest days of the war. Chris, what do you got? Well, uh, yeah, what have I got about this? So, um, number one, it took me a while to work out how to pronounce this, uh, attackums. <laughs> Until yeah. I read the article, because I was like, oh, that's how you pronounce it. Because I was like, look at this acronym, thinking, how on earth do you pronounce this acronym? So attackums make sense. Um, and as you mentioned, it's these cluster munitions, the one they've got. Um, with all the controversy around cluster munitions, we did talk about it a while back. And, um, and in particular, with these cluster munitions, if they don't work, there are plans for a proper cleanup after the fact. So... Um, and, and again, that they're targeting military targets. They're not just targeting civilian areas of cluster munitions, which is where, yeah. you know, understandably people get concerned because children can pick these things up and blow themselves up. And the cluster munition can be quite effective against its target because obviously it's spreading a lot of explosives over a small area. So, in fact, these might be the perfect weapon for Ukraine. Um, and it just makes the environment environment more difficult for russia to operate in they've already we've um pulled a large bulk of the black sea fleet out of the main base and occupied crimea not particularly because of these missiles but just because of the success of drone strikes and other missile strikes against russian forces so the harder you make it for russia to be able to operate in ukraine the more likely it is that russia will either have to stop what they're doing or it will lead to a defeat of russia um we will see and i think in my view has changed a little bit in the last sort of few months i actually think that basically i think ukraine needs to win the war before the american elections uh, i really do because yeah. uh, if they don't i think they might be fucked um and you know quite frankly i think they might be if if trump or some trumpian type republican gets in we could be seeing the end of NATO. We could see all sorts of aid pulled away from Ukraine because the, sadly, a lot of the Republican Party are either very sympathetic to Russia because Russia presents itself as the savior of the white Christian world. That's how Russia presents itself. And there's a few Republicans who buy into that nonsense. Um, and they're very anti-Ukraine. And I, and I think that um, really we need to give everything Ukraine needs now to win this war before... 2024 election <laughs> um yeah. so so they've been asking for this weapon for some time um and i think as i mentioned before on a previous podcast the problem about all these delays with the weapons we've been giving ukraine is it gives russia time to come up with countermeasures to all these weapons um so yeah so finally they've got it um and i think they you know i think ukraine will use it as responsibly i don't as they can i don't think you're gonna could be wrong but i don't honestly believe you'll be seeing attacks against sort of um russia itself with these weapons um but they will no. be trying to get back their territory or at least um they're also going to try and remove the superior air power that russia still have over ukrainian forces because the problem is at yeah. the moment their land forces because russia have superior air power um 
That provides protective cover for Russians' land forces. It makes it very hard for Ukrainian forces to move forward. So the more the Ukrainians can do to remove that um, air superiority, the more the Ukrainian conventional forces can move forward and actually win this war. So you know, if we're able to, if they're able to bomb Russian air bases um, in occupied territory, then this is great news for the Ukrainians. I mean, I think ultimately it, it's you know better late than never. Yeah. Um, I that said, I think I think they're right to 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 give them to to the Ukrainians, yeah. but I do think that Washington's concerns about escalation mm. if Ukraine uses these missiles to strike deep inside Russia mm. was warranted. Yes, I, mean, I, I think agree. it's 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 fair to be cautious mm. when when you're going to jab a stick into the eye of a country that's sitting on an arsenal of 6,000 nuclear warheads. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, It'd be irresponsible I, I, not to be cautious. Yeah, it's there. just prudent to let's think about this and decide if this is something that we really want to do. Um, that said, I do think there ultimately is a trouble, a troubling pattern of the White House saying no, 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 and then eventually giving it to them anyway, if, whether that's tanks or F-16s or, you know, what have you, high Mars back in the day. Yeah. Um, I do think, hopefully, to to your point, um, I, I think this will. I, I I hope it will ultimately break the sort of stalemate mm. the Ukraine has found themselves in. Um, and I do think it probably helps them to credibly threaten Crimea, which I've long thought I've said that on here before. Um, that I think the war will enter its end game once once the Ukrainians can can credibly mm. threaten Crimea because mm. Putin politically he 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 can't afford to lose Crimea. No. No, in many ways he can't afford to lose this war, but um, I think no. he needs to. Uh, uh, and you know, it's an interesting thing. It was in an article not long ago. If if the war were to stop tomorrow, it would take Russia about five years to rebuild its forces. Um, it's not a long time. Yeah, and and so if you have a weakened NATO, um, you know, what's stopping Russia from moving on to other Eastern Bloc countries or former Eastern Bloc countries? Yeah, the Baltics. Know? Yeah, so I think Russia do need to be defeated or stopped in some significant way to make sure that they know that they can't keep getting away with this. Um, yeah. You know? <laughs> and yeah. we're about to probably move on to more Russian activity that they're getting away with. Yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> We're going to turn back the clock here a bit and see, yeah, what they got away with for a while. Uh, so because we all love chewing on a juicy new piece of open source investigative journalism, uh, Michael Weiss, Christo Grozev of Bellingcat, and Roman Dobrokotov have a sprawling article in The Insider piecing together Russia's role in an explosion at a Bulgarian ammunition depot mm -hmm. over a decade ago. So in November 2011, Russia's GRU unit uh, 29155 tasked with sabotage, assassinations, and direct action missions abroad, executed its first known operation in Lovnadal, Bulgaria, targeting an ammunition depot containing old Soviet artillery rounds slated to be shipped to Georgia after the country's brief 2008 war with Russia. An unexploded IED was discovered near the site, suggesting a deliberate act. Unit 29155 operatives were tasked with developing remote detonators for the attack in Bulgaria, leading to the use of three homemade devices concealed in everyday objects. Bulgarian investigators initially failed to connect the incident to foul play, but evidence suggested sabotage. Um, the operation marked the unit's debut in a series of high-profile attacks, including the poisoning of Sergei and Yulia Skripal and a Bulgarian arms dealer, as well as a coup attempt in Montenegro. 
using uh, travel records and phone metadata, the insider and Bellingcat uncovered how Unit 29155 operatives used fake identities and staggered arrivals to avoid some detection while preparing for the attacks in Czechia. Uh, some of these operatives were later linked to the Skripal poisoning. Um, the unit was responsible for destroying arms and ammunition depots in Bulgaria and Czechia over the next four years, resulting in several casualties and diplomatic expulsions. General Andrei Avryanov, then the unit's commander, was recently appointed deputy director of the GRU, overseeing military and hybrid operations in Africa, East Asia, and the Middle East, and has become a trusted figure in Putin's inner circle, inheriting a substantial portion of the late Yevgeny Prigozhin's business empire. Avryanov and his subordinates have been involved in various covert activities, including constructing remote detonators for the Bulgaria bombing. Leaked data and investigative journalism are shedding light on Avryanov's activities and personal life, including extramarital affairs and financial mismanagement. Other unit members involved in attacks were rewarded with high-profile federal jobs in Russia. The unit's actions in Europe and other regions raise concerns for NATO and EU countries regarding Russian sabotage capabilities. Uh, Chris, this is kind of right up your alley, this kind of deep dive. So yeah, Unit 29155 is definitely becoming legendary in its prolific use of assassinations and now sabotage. And Andrei Avryanov is a fascinating character as well. And I guess he's the, in some ways, the new Prigozhin now, in some respects. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm fascinated by this sort of um, last few days in Africa between Prigozhin and, and this guy. <laughs> it's, it's definitely yeah. a, um, a film or a, a play to be made about maybe those two just a few days Ooh. beforehand. And especially... Like a little two-hander chamber piece? Could well be, yeah. Yeah, yeah. a bit like the yeah, Frost-Nixon yeah. type thing. <laughs> yes. There's something yes. in that. And, um, Let me get working on that. Yeah, yeah. And and I think <laughs> the death of Prigozhin has 29155's hands all over it, you know, because if we're to... Um, the, one of the stewardesses who died on the plane, before the plane took off, she was in text exchange with her relatives, and she mentioned that the plane... Um, apparently the plane had um, had uh, had extra checks and there were men looking around it potentially to buy the plane and stuff like that. There's something very fishy about all that and, and obviously the plane, um, you know, spectacularly falling out of the sky the way it did. Um, and so I reckon 29155 all over that is my suspicion. Um, and then with these particular attacks, it just shows how brazen this unit is and how the Russian government's attitude is to sanction such operations, you know? Um, yeah. With these particular explosions and things, these explosives were placed in a truck that went through the Czech Republic and Bulgaria, um, bypassing Bratislava, Budapest, Belgrade, and Sofia. And it's a 745-mile trip. And those explosives could have gone off in those munitions truck at any point during that truck's trip. And imagine if that had gone off in a European capital somewhere. First, people would think it's terrorism. But as you yeah. do a more forensic analysis and, I don't know, somehow find Unit 29155's fingerprints on it in some way, um, that would create such a... The loss of life aside, which would have been quite high... Um, it would create such a diplomatic incident that it just appears that the Russian government don't care. They just don't care. Um, so, well, you know, it, these these operations are just so brazen. Well, I think it sort of speaks to the way they sort of got away with this stuff for years. Oh, for, yeah. You know, yeah. prodding NATO, um, yeah. you know, 
a little bit here and there, stepping up, inching up, thinking they can get away with more and more and more. And I think that very much sort of put us into the world that we're in today. Um, that, you know, we didn't, we didn't smack them back, uh, years ago when we, when we should have. Death by a thousand cuts, but yeah. Yes. To another sort of vexing issue for the, for the Russians, I want to read a, a, a quote here from the article, um, about, uh, General Aryanov's corruption here that I think oh, is pretty yes, they are so corrupt and and yeah. and extremely Russian. Um, okay, so here's a quote: "There is also evidence that he has used the resources of his service for personal purposes, starting with his fondness for Land Rover SUVs, a new one of which Aryanov buys every three years, and whose average sticker price, upwards of fifty thousand dollars." exceeds his annual on-paper salary as a GRU officer. Quick note, I've been to the Land Rover factory last year. I filmed in it, and I've seen these things being made. But anyway. <laughs> and any any Russians there shopping? Not that I saw, no. But they do hang around uh, some of the dealerships I've seen uh, in central London. But yeah, Kensington. Yeah, you got a good Kensington yeah. to find them. Uh, so leaked emails also show he has had multiple simultaneous extramarital affairs mm. with women younger than his 34-year-old daughter. Daughter Alexandra, that's gross, yeah. for whom he threw a Hollywood style wedding in 2017. One of Avryanov's uh, young former mistresses, whom we'll call Tatiana, told the insider that the GRU commander plied her with expensive items such as iPads, luxury watches, and presents from his overseas trips, mm. while also housing her in an upscale Moscow apartment uh, near the Kremlin. He spent thousands of dollars each month on Tatiana, just one of his many girlfriends, because this guy gets around, Mm. uh, even outfitting her with a coterie of bodyguards and errand boys, all handpicked by Avryanov from the ranks of Unit 29155. I just want to say, this is why, this is why Russia has spent nearly two years getting its fucking ass kicked in Ukraine. This sort of corruption, the Mm. fat, malaise, the rot, has been a cancer on their armed forces. No professional military should act this way. China cracked down on this hard and mm. for this very reason. Because mm. mm. you yeah. go to war and you're all sort of fat, corrupt kleptocrats and all the money that was supposed to go to modernize and train and build up your armed forces got dumped into um, your like 20-year-old girlfriend. And her shopping trips and her apartment. That's why you're getting your fucking ass kicked Mm. in Ukraine. That is why. That's the reason. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the last last thing we want is um, a Russia that's competent right now. Yes. (laughs) Um, So so have another BMW and uh, uh, Land Rover. (laughs) Yeah. Beyond that, Mm. I I Mm. continue to be amazed at how Bellingcat pieces this information together. Um, And I'd I'd love their I'd love to compare their reporting on this unit with the reporting coming out of the U.S. intelligence community Mm. and see like Mm. how much on par they are with what the IC has. From a chat I had a few years ago, I mean. From my understanding, with somebody I spoke to, MI6 are um, sometimes do end up in a situation where they have to justify themselves because of reporting a belling cat in the public domain. Um, so I, I believe think, it. Yeah, so I think open source intelligence is changing the way professional intelligence works. And sometimes, you know, um, open source is sort of um, is managing to do things that the traditional way can't. Yeah. 
the um the CIA has run an open source center mm. for many many years way before it got mm. sexy mm. i mean it was originally sort of a um uh like they would do like simultaneous translation of foreign tv broadcasts and newspapers and stuff like uh old soviet military journals and everything they would analyze that and you can get a lot of stuff mm. um out of those but i'm sure it's it's gotten way more advanced since then their offices are actually in um they're in Reston, Virginia. They're right next to the metro. I was I was like literally across the street from it the other week, and mm. I was like, "Oh yeah, I, I I know it's in that building." Um, you can see all the cameras and the guys with guns yeah. out front. Yeah. That's kind why. Of makes me think of Three Days to Condor because wasn't that the operation that Robert Redford was working for something like that when they were translating Russian novels or something? Yeah, <laughs> that's 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 exactly what that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what they were doing. Yeah, it's gotten a bit more advanced now, I'm sure. Yeah, a bit bigger. <laughs> yeah. So lastly, as mm. if we haven't reached for the third rail enough on this podcast recently, let's talk about Donald Trump. Woohoo! <laughs> uh, Rolling Stones, Oswin, Subsang, and Adam Raleigh reported something we've all kind of known and have talked about here before, uh, but it's no less disconcerting to see in print. So Donald Trump considered withdrawing the United States from NATO during his first term, but was dissuaded by senior administration officials. For a potential second term, Trump is exploring ways to reduce American involvement in NATO to a, quote, standby position. Trump has expressed a preference for not having, quote, NATO lovers in his administration and has criticized the alliance during discussions about the war in Ukraine. He has indicated a willingness to withdraw from NATO unless the alliance meets his demands, including uh, increased defense spending by non-American members and a reevaluation of the principle of collective defense. Trump's ideas align with a policy brief titled Pivoting the U.S. Away from Europe to a Dormant NATO, circulated within his inner circle. In the past, Trump misunderstood NATO's collective spending agreements, viewing them as dues paid to the U.S. rather than a requirement for defense spending. Concerns about a potential U.S. withdrawal from NATO have prompted legislative measures to prevent it, requiring Senate approval for such a move. Trump's continued frustration with NATO allies and concerns about U.S. military aid to Ukraine raised the possibility of him following through on his threats to lead the alliance if he wins the 2024 presidential election. Even if it becomes more difficult for Trump to formally leave NATO, he could still undermine the credibility of U.S. security guarantees to other member states. If he hasn't already. <laughs> Do you know what? Fair point. You know what, Matt? As I look to my right, there's a massive storm cloud actually brewing right now. It's this big anvil that's going to that's lead to a thunderstorm, probably positively Shakespearean. It is, and and it kind of totally is the metaphor for <laughs> everything about the Trump getting into the next election right now. Um, I think just what the world really needs, especially Europe, really needs right now, is somebody dicking around with the NATO alliance. You know, we've got an aggressive Russia, as we've just talked about. We've got GRU killers bombing and killing people across Europe. Um, and obviously, you've got Russia's war in Ukraine. And obviously, we've got the crisis in the Middle East that's sort of developing. Do we really need another politician who does not understand how institutions work, who's completely egotistical? Do we really, really need that right now in this world? And why the fuck is Donald Trump a viable candidate in American politics right now. Why is that man not in jail 
or at least on the road to jail. I'm sorry, but it's just so ridiculous. And it's completely blowing American credibility because in Europe, where I'm based, you know, in the UK, um, and all I see is endless debates about, well, what do we do if we can't rely on America anymore? And, you know, America is losing its soft power dramatically. And in time, it's going to lose its, hard, lose its hard power too. If it starts to pull out of NATO and start messing around with that, you're going to cause no end of problems. And, um, you know, and I really think it's a bad thing. And I will just add, um, just out of balance, there are far left candidates who also believe nonsense like this about disbanding NATO. In the oh, UK, yeah, sure. we had Jeremy Corbyn. If he'd been prime minister, one of his objectives was to pull Britain out of NATO. And we don't need that either. But what we do need are some sensible politicians who understand how things work and who are true statesmen or stateswomen or statespeople. I'm not quite sure what the appropriate term is for a statesperson. Um, but we need professionals who know what they're doing, who can run a government without causing a crisis every 10 seconds because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. You who just had Bojo for how long? <laughs> I know, but uh, I know. Oh my goodness! Yeah, we we know a lot about ineffectual politicians in this country at the moment, um, and the damage they cause. Liz Truss, in particular, damaging the British economy in a dramatic way in less than forty-one days, and she's being invited to some um, massive financial conference as a guest of honor, which is quite ironic. But there we go. Mm. Um, <laughs> okay, you know, um, they, obviously Bernie Madoff's no longer available, and uh, Nick Leeson wasn't available for comment. Yeah. But um, Sam Bankman-Fried is tied up. Yeah, I just really wish Western politics as a whole would sort itself out because it's so painful that we keep having ineffectual candidates on all sides coming out of the woodwork and causing all sorts of issues and making us have all these existential crises where we think that the whole world is imploding. And we just need to get our act together because it's really quite bad. And the world right now, definitely, um, for good or bad, the world needs a strong America right now. Um, certainly, Europe needs it. Um, and I just, I don't know. I just, if Trump gets back in, I just see nothing but the storm cloud to my right that's getting ever bigger. <laughs> yeah. So there's my rant. One, one star comments are welcome. <laughs> um. Well, let me start off with, with this. I think without going into spoilers for Active Measures Part 2, I've, I'll say I've shed far too much blood, sweat, and tears researching and writing about Article 5, mm. NATO's Collective Defense Clause, uh, much more than I ever wanted to. Mm. Um, and so I can say with, I think, some authority that Trump has no idea what the fuck he's talking about. Um when it when it comes to Article Five or even the the spending agreement, so uh, Article Five is yeah, it's 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 NATO's collective defense clause. It's in the Washington Treaty, which is NATO's charter. Um, it basically says an an attack on on one of us is an attack on all. Um, and it was basically sort of made yeah in in the fifties so that a um uh let's say a hypothetical Soviet invasion of Iceland would be treated no differently. Um, than a bunch of tank divisions blazing through the Fulda Gap into West Germany. Um, that said, when a NATO member invokes its its Article Five privileges, um, the North Atlantic Council gets together and they they discuss uh, the attack which which an alliance member supposedly faced. So we invoked Article Five after nine eleven. I believe that was the first time it was ever invoked by us after 9-11. Um, 
it's been uh, not quite invoked since then. Um, Turkey invoked Article 4 a couple times, which uh, it's it's right to consultations um, during the Syrian Civil War a few times. Um, and uh, I believe Poland invoked it when Ukraine was invaded, I believe, invoked Article 4. But when the North Atlantic Council meets and sort of discusses what discusses the attack and sort of determines amongst itself that Article 5 should be operationalized, the language of the clause in NATO's charter says essentially, I don't have it right in front of me here, um, it says essentially that uh, alliance members will sort of provide aid to the extent that they're sort of able and deem deem necessary based on their own sort of capabilities and, and national defense commitments, mm-hmm. which doesn't mean that the president of, I don't know, pick a random Eastern European country that's a member of, of NATO, um, Macedonia, North Macedonia, right? Uh, the president of North Macedonia cannot order up the American 82nd Airborne Division because the president of North Macedonia is not the commander-in-chief of the U.S. Armed Forces, right? So even if Article 5 is operationalized for whatever reason, right, it's still on the president of the United States to decide how the U.S., and this is true of any other NATO member, you guys, France, Germany, whoever, Italy, right, Canada, it's mm-hmm. on those individual countries to decide then how it will come to the alliance's aid, right? Um, so it's not like it's not a suicide pact. Let's describe it that way. And as for the defense spending, um, your NATO members are supposed to spend two percent of their GDP on its defense budget, right? So for us or you guys or France or Germany, that would be just be that percentage would just mean a lot more than, say, North Macedonia, right? That has a much smaller GDP. It's not what he seems, what Trump seems to misunderstand. I don't know if this is on purpose or not. Um, It's not like a country club. NATO isn't like a country club membership, you know, like he seems to think that that defense spending is like dues that that we're being paid and he thinks that they're not paying enough. That said, I think a lot of other, I think a lot of European countries, yeah, you guys included, yeah. if I'm being frank, have not been spending enough on your defense spending. Your militaries have been have been gutted and have Europe has depended on oh, the American yeah, defense yeah. umbrella yeah. for for far too long. And I would love to see yeah, you guys yeah. beef up your your militaries back to sort of a comparable mm. level to sort of mm. where they were in the early 2000s perhaps oh yeah i agree and we've had successive governments have gutted the royal navy yeah. the air force the army and and it's it's getting even worse actually um you know it's talking to because i do some work on the warships podcast listening to various episodes of that you know the royal naval defense reviews just being a disaster zone for years and um yeah and there's just no political will it's not a proper adult political understanding yeah. about the military no. anymore in this country um you either get people talk about the industrial arms complex or you get people who um are the other side of that spectrum where they want to bomb the bejesus out of everything and over militarize but you don't have people who have proper mature debates about like the need of tridents and stuff like that yeah. it just gets silly every time i think also, to your point about Western politics being just very kind of silly and juvenile and idiotic and how we need to get our act together, mm. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I think 
could could one have made the argument in the 90s or maybe even up to a couple years ago like what's nato doing does it need to sort of exist in this in this mm-hmm. state you could have made that argument I think the minute the Russians went in went into Ukraine, that sort of argument just went out the window. Oh yeah. Even then, like to Trump's point that like in the article it sort of says how Trump sort of believes. I mean, Trump doesn't really believe anything. These are his advisors that are telling him this. Um, that NATO's yeah. sort of yeah. like bloated and 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 ineffective. NATO's command structure, whether it's the international staff in Brussels or um allied command operations in 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 Mons and the sort of whole military apparatus that's under that that's been pared down drastically since the end of the cold war it's quite a lean um joint kind of command and and, and control center is essentially what it what it looks like if you look at like an org chart mm. it's it's mm. it's very silly but oh yeah so to your point about Western politics being very silly and and we need to get our act together, I, I agree with you. I think you're looking, we've sort of talked on here before about the sort of anti-democratic authoritarian axis that's been developed between Russia, mm. China, Iran, um, portions of the global South that are kind of, mm. you know, sitting on the fence that are with us some days, that are with them the other days. I think if we got our act together, you know, um, whether, you know, us, Europe, Australia, Japan, South Korea, the Southeast Asian countries that really want nothing to do with China, we could bury those people together. It wouldn't even be a contest. That sort of authoritarian, anti-democratic mm. axis can only defeat us if we first defeat ourselves by acting like jackasses. And we are. Yeah. Look at Twitter. I mean, it's a disaster zone. We're going to talk about that uh, soon. Extra yeah. Extra shot. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's uh, well, maybe we'll save that for extra yeah. shot then. But yeah, it's uh, case in yeah. point. <laughs> All right. All right. So, uh that's about it for today's espresso martini um links to the articles we discussed today will be in the show notes uh chris and i are going to continue our conversation on extra shot if you're a subscriber we'll see you there shortly and if not we hope you sign up and join us um before we wrap that today uh i just want to take a moment and and give a special thanks to our listeners um i think it's safe to say chris that you and i were a little nervous releasing our last few episodes um, we're covering issues that people have bitterly fought over for 2000 years. And while we try our best, uh, we never know how an episode will land, um, until it's out mm. and beyond our control. Um, the reception though, it seems has been really great. Um, we've gotten a few very touching reviews lately that for me anyway, I think validates why we do this show. Yeah. I mean, we're not CNN, of course, we don't, we don't want to be, um, but I think we try to use this format to wade into these heavy and recently oppressively dark issues and hopefully offer a bit of nuance, depth, and and clarity that I think often gets lost in the noise. Yeah. Um, I think on most days, our world isn't as dark as the more cynical corners of our minds may paint it to be. Um, and I hope that in these conversations we have, uh, you'll see a glimmer of hope Um as well so all that to say thanks for sticking with us um chris i don't know if you'd like to add anything to that honestly i don't think i could top that matt no seriously thank you everybody for you know 
listening to us and and obviously and i you know i just speaking for myself uh do find these shows quite therapeutic sometimes because i'm you know trying to understand these things as much as probably you are listening and um just through the process of every couple of weeks of having to select all these stories look into them and realize certain things um i find it very very helpful and um and i'm just glad that you're finding it helpful too so you know thank you for supporting us and sticking with us and um and we're gonna you know we do our we'll do our best to keep on that course yep well said all right thank you take care everyone uh we'll see you again soon thank you everybody speak to you in a bit bye Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. 